Günaydın. Rab size bereket versin. This is Turkish, not English, which means good morning. May the Lord God bless you abundantly. I, um, I've been living in Turkey for the past five and a half years, teaching English over there, getting to know the culture, and sharing about the love of Christ with my friends, my coworkers, my students, and basically everyone I have an opportunity to do so. A couple things I want to share about Turkey with you. You probably have an impression from the news media that it's a very dangerous place, that there's terrorist attacks, going on all the time, that there's a war, that it's just full of bloodshed and bombings and things of that nature. Well, some of that has happened in the recent past, but in general, Turkey is not any more dangerous than a big city in the United States. The people are interesting as well, and they're different from us. I'll give you a couple of examples to paint this picture for you. Um, there are outdoor, let's say, workout stations that people go to, to pump iron and that kind of stuff, and usually they'll do it when they're smoking. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, they also are very big on touching, very touchy-feely culture, so you guys might like your personal bubble, I know I do, but in Turkey you may not have that luxury. People could come up and take you by the arm and start walking or grab you on the shoulder or basically anything. When, you, when a man is sitting next to another man, sometimes he might even grab your thigh when he's talking to you, which is very uncomfortable. <clears throat> um, but they're also a very hospitable people. They love to serve, they love to give, they like to show their culture and just allow you to be immersed in Turkish cuisine, Turkish dancing, Turkish music, basically anything and everything. The landscape is also probably a little different than what you're expecting. Um, a lot of people ask me if it's a desert. Well, there might be a little desert in Turkey, but it's picturesque. Um, you'll get to see some pictures after the service, as I'll be in here with my computer showing a slideshow. It's not, most of it's not desert, though. There's lots of mountains, rolling hills, there's trees, there's some parts that are more barren, um, but there's also heavy forests, in some places, there's a beautiful coastline. Turkey is a very scenic place, and I hope someday some of you might be able to go and visit if you haven't already. This December, I got to visit a very unique geological place in Turkey called Cappadocia, which you might have heard of. Basically, leftover from volcanic residue of, of thousands, millions of years ago, these teepee-like structures made out of stone um, just like populating this landscape for about three or four miles, just these teepees all over the place. And uh, there's one, most of them are about maybe between 10 and 20 or 30 feet tall. There's one that's a couple hundred feet tall that my friends and I decided to climb when we went to visit Cappadocia in December. It took quite a while to get up the steps to climb all the way to the top, but when we got to the top, we were given a beautiful perspective on the land around, the mountains, the hills, the civilizations, the towns, and all the other peribajalar, they call these fairy chimneys, all across the landscape. We all have, to some degree, mountaintop experiences, 
where we are elated. We get a very high perspective on the world around us. Sometimes this is literal, like in my example. Sometimes it's figurative, where you feel like you are on top of the world. Gives us a broader perspective on what's going on. Get to see how roads are connected when you're looking in the distance. You can see bodies of water that maybe you couldn't have seen from down below. Mountains, trees, you get a better perspective. It's interesting, um, in Moses' climb to Mount Sinai, that he has a very broad perspective as well at the top of the mountain. It says in uh, Exodus 24 that when Moses ascended the mountain to go and speak with the Lord, that he was surrounded by this cloud and that the people below saw this cloud and this fire and were just blown away and a little bit scared. And I find that really fascinating when we're talking about perspective because usually you would think that clouds obscure vision, that they block you from being able to see what's beyond the fog in front of you. But in this case, that doesn't happen. Moses sees the Lord. Moses sees God face to face. And the glory of the Lord shines upon his face and is reflected upon it. And in this conversation, the time they're spent together, Moses also gets a new perspective but it's not on the ge geographical surroundings of Mount Sinai, but on the situation of God's people and how to draw them closer to him, the covenant. Moses is equipped with a proclamation and equipped with the glory of God. Talk about an encounter, a spiritual awakening atop this mountain. And at the end of the passage, he, he descends down the mountain ready to lead ready to take the glory of the Lord with him. Now this grandiose 40 days atop the mountain is pretty intense, pretty exciting, but it doesn't really compare. It's a shadow of another New Testament um, interaction encounter on the mountain. Thousands of years later, three fishermen would follow Jesus of Nazareth atop the mountain. And this was a frequent thing we can surmise from the the Gospels, that Jesus would retreat often to pray and to seek his Father. It's so frequent, in fact, that Peter and James and John, I mean, it's nap time for them. They follow Jesus to the top and they fall asleep. And we see this again later in, in Gethsemane. They just, you know, it's part of the norm. But this time when they wake up from their nap, they see something that they had not seen before. They see their rabbi, the glory of the Lord upon his face, his garments dazzling white, and two other figures that they are able to recognize as Moses and Elijah, Old Testament prophets and heroes of the faith. Peter must have woken up thinking, am I dreaming? This is just, this is weird. I don't know what's going on here. But soon he comes to and he suggests, why don't we build three shelters so you guys can stay and talk a long time, you Lord Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter, excited about this, wants this to continue, but he doesn't actually realize the significance of this encounter. 
And once again, just as on Mount Sinai, the cloud shows up, giving a new divine perspective, speaking, this is the son, the chosen, listen to him. In other words, Jesus is not equal to Elijah and Moses. It's not one shelter for each of them. They're all just going to have this conversation and stay here forever. This is the son. This is the chosen. Listen to him. Out of this holy cloud comes a new perspective that sheds light on who Jesus is. There's so many fascinating parallels between Mount Sinai and the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, but one thing stands clear, and that is Jesus is the chosen. He receives the fullness of God's glory and divine authority. No one can surpass that. As wonderful as this was, seeing Jesus in this light, getting a bit more insight into who he was, Mountaintop experiences don't last. They're equipping periods. They're resourcing us from God to experience him in a new way and be better prepared with this new perspective. It prepared Moses and it prepared Jesus. For Moses, this wasn't the end. He had to go back down the mountain earlier in in Exodus. He goes back down the mountain and has to interact with an impatient idolatrous people who, after just making a covenant with God, have turned to a golden calf. Wow, it must have driven him crazy and, of course, the Lord. These people who just experienced the Lord's rescue, his provision. Clearly, Moses needs to be prepared to deal with this, to to help them. Jesus, too, being prepared, being equipped, being readied, He goes down the mountain with his disciples and immediately confronts demon-possessed children, ill people, um, those who need his touch and experiences the fragility, the brokenness of humanity. So in the first half, we see the sin of humanity and their powerlessness to create a God for themselves. And then we see the the, the broken, fragile, fragile people that Jesus must interact with and bring healing to. Both of them want a God. Both of them want someone more powerful than themselves, either for healing or for wholeness. And we do too a lot of times. I think most of the time. Whether we're suffering from physical or mental sickness, grief, poverty, loneliness, just a lack of something. And maybe you can't put your finger on it but you know that it's not something that you can deal with yourself. You need to take it to someone or something. Sometimes we're so desperate that we have nothing else to turn to that we do create idols for ourselves, different types of idols, whether TV or food or alcohol or just pride in yourself or your job. But idols can't and don't bring that wholeness to our hearts and our minds and our spirits. Man can't do it either. When Jesus walked down the mountain, he was told that his disciples failed to cast out the demon. You know, sometimes we we think we're capable of everything and anything, and oftentimes God swiftly reminds me that that's not the case. 
but Jesus can do it. Jesus is that completion that we need, that wholeness that we need in our hearts. And he takes on the worst consequences of our sin, our disobedience, our weakness, all of those things. He takes the punishment to see us saved and redeemed and made whole. But as the church, we are also often on a mountaintop. We come here, among other places, to seek a closeness with the Lord, to seek that filling, that resourcing, that, that spirit, that word that nourishes our hearts and prepares us. We are equipped, we're filled, because we are being called and we're being sent. Now, this may not be a physical mountain, but... It is one that's meant to provide a spiritual awakening, a renewal, a refreshing. Not so you can go home and feel better about yourself, but that so you can go into the world and touch those needy parts with the love of Christ that the world so desperately needs. Whether or not it realizes it, it needs it. Jesus was identified and anointed upon this mountain and then sent, ultimately, to the cross. And so when we descend the mountain to meet the people, we have the privilege of taking the cross of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you a little bit about my mountaintop experience. I am here for a few months. I came back from Turkey in January, and I've been refreshing, recuperating. My parents would say I've been watching a lot of TV and lounging around a bit, which, you know, it's true. But it's partially because there's a lot of darkness in Turkey. There's a lot of need in Turkey, and it can be exhausting. Just to give you a little picture, these people have an identity struggle. Their Turkey is basically situated between the Middle East and Europe, and you see that reflected in their culture. Part of the country, part of the nation, feels very much compelled to revert to a more conservative Islamic stance on life and perspective, more rigid in their um, following of Allah and Muhammad. And so they try to make the country and its policies more strict, more stringent, more about that. The other half of the country, um, it's like, wants to be a part of the, the European Union, wants to be a part of our world, seeing Hollywood and seeing all this stuff going on in the news in Europe and just seeing that, oh, Europe seems to be the, the top, the pinnacle, the best, the best um, union to be associated with. So they strive for that. They want to be good. They want to be better. This is, this is really a big identity struggle, and the people are really, really trying to prove themselves, whether to the Arab culture in the Middle East or... Europe and North America. And I'll get questions too on a more personal level that show that they're really looking for an affirmation in their identity. Teacher, why did you come to Turkey? You could have gone to any other country, but you chose Turkey, that's amazing. Why? We wanna know. Do you speak Turkish? They ask me these questions because they want me to affirm who they are, and that their culture is important. But also, they want me to infer, affirm that they themselves are important. I've had female students ask me before, teacher, do you think we're beautiful? 
and I just have to stop. First off, why does my opinion matter? Secondly, do you not think you are? Kind of makes me just hurt for them a lot of times. They also have some serious trust issues related to gossip. It's an honor-shame culture, so anything that's wrong or bad or shameful is reflected upon the family. So if, something, if you do something wrong, if you make a mistake, if you hurt someone, you can't really tell anyone about it because the gossip will bring it back to your family and they will potentially kick you out. It's a little different from our culture. I've heard people tell me about lies and betrayal. I've heard multiple stories of abortions <clears throat> that these people haven't told their parents, their siblings. They carry this guilt, this shame around because no one will hear it and they might be rejected. And they share it with me because I'm an outsider. I'm not a part of this Turkish culture, this gossiping culture. So I am there to bear some of this burden and you can see how it becomes a dark place for that, especially for me. They want to preserve a good image. They want to show themselves clean and pristine so that their God will accept them and their family, their community will accept them. And sometimes I think we do that too. Again, maybe a lot of times in different ways. But we want to show that we're all right. We have it together. Even when inside we know that we don't. And the other darkness of Turkey right now is the refugee situation. From Syria, Iraq, Iran, and many other places, these families come individually with nothing, with the clothes on their back, and the trauma in their heart from the wars, from the killing, from the violence and the destruction, with no hope, nothing. I've seen families begging on the street, and they'll often take their children with them to show their desperation. The baby cries, and it makes other people more sympathetic. So they give more. Or that's the theory. I've seen people, whether by choice or not, in the middle of winter, which it is actually cold in Ankara, in the capital where I live in winter, covered, there, there's a man sitting on the, on the back of a, the wall of a bank, crouched down with just a sweater covering his whole body, his knees huddled together, the sweater covering everything, bare feet, maybe 30 degrees, with nothing looking for hope, for sympathy, for something. So what can we do about this? Well, I do want to assure you that there is a church in Turkey. It's very small. Maybe, I think it's 0.1% of Turks have heard the gospel, and fewer than that have chosen to follow it. But there are some individuals, some communities in Ankara, that seek to help to aid the refugee community. But it is swelled so big that it is impossible with just a handful of people to reach the entire nation of refugees. Now let me tell you what the needs are here. These refugees, these Turks, these people surrounded by darkness, they don't need me. They don't need better pastors. 
better missionaries, social workers, friends, teachers, or bosses. They need Christ. They need the Lord. The glory of the Lord went with Moses back down the mountain. The fullness of the Lord was embodied in Christ as he descended to the masses and eventually went to the cross and the tomb and was resurrected. It begins with the mountaintop experience, but it doesn't end with the mountaintop experience. The Lord gives us his truth, his provision, and then he directs us back. So I'm seeing God in this community. I'm being met by him in this community and other communities. And I'm being sent back to Turkey. Our church, the International Protestant Church of Ankara, just acquired a refugee, or an apartment that they're renovating into a refugee center for teaching English, for providing fellowship opportunities, helping them create resumes because helping them get jobs, be prepared for the future is a need they have, in addition to some of the other physical needs. As I mentioned, this very small population of Turkish Christians need more people to come alongside them and encourage them. Not to tell them how to profess their faith or what to do on Sundays, but just to be a friend, just to be an encouragement, just to be a brother in Christ. As well as our International Protestant Church, which is growing, a lot of expats there, it's it's about to split. There's about 200 people in our service. The building's not big enough, so they need more leaders to step up and help. And this is where I'm sensing that God has been sending me. He's equipped me. He's resourced me through you all and the, other, the others of my faith community that have, I've had the privilege of visiting while being home. And I might be weak alone, but like I said, Turkey doesn't need me. It needs the love of Christ. It needs Christ himself. And through us, when we're gathered together, there's Christ. Lastly, I want to bring us to your mountaintops and valleys. Of course you struggle. Of course you have highs and lows. But as Henry Nouwen puts it, great Christian theologian and writer, we are wounded healers. We come from places of brokenness at the bottom of the mountain, we go to the top of the mountain. It's a back and forth a lot of times. We are wounded healers though. In that brokenness, in that woundedness, in those dark places, God is equipping us to serve others. We find him on the mountain and he fills us with himself. And then he leads us back into the valleys to do battle. But let me make this clear. The war has already been won on the last great mountain, Calvary. The war has been won. Hallelujah. And we can always go back to that mountain to experience the fullness of God's love, the power of Christ, the resurrection, and to take that back into the world as the world so desperately needs this. So I invite you, today, the rest of this week, think about how God has been showing you himself on the mountain and where is he sending you back into the trenches, into the valleys to show people the love of Christ. Amen.